0: Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. We are recording live once again from downtown Uncorked, who, despite our antics, continue to host us.
1: In historic downtown Bryan.
0: In historic downtown Bryan, which you remind me every time. I seem to keep forgetting. Uh, Last time we uh, were here about a week ago, we were with... Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs, talking about some AI and future work. You may have noticed that I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I think I talked as much as the guest last time.
1: It was very noticeable.
0: (laughs) Multiple people said something to me, so I think we've got to have a better filter tonight. Um, And this will be our final live recording at Downtown Uncorked for the spring. Uh, For those of you that have been following along, we have one more, uh, two more episodes, actually, we're going to bring to you. One is from an event that was held at the Bush School on volunteerism. So we'll be bringing you that in probably the next week or two. And Dr. Valerie Hudson will be joining us for a conversation uh, next week, and we'll be publishing it next Friday as well. So we have a couple more episodes coming for you down the pipe, uh, but this is the last time we get to hang with the audience until the fall. And um, for those of you that uh, have been following along, we, will, we have a pretty packed schedule that we'll be sharing with you in the fall. We'll be pushing out on the Bush website and on our social media probably late summer.
1: But, so, but we are academics, so don't expect anything over the summer.
0: Yeah. Over the summer, we're just going to be lounging around the pool, kicking our feet up, and reading, because we don't do any work. So, uh, as usual, Greg's here with me. Um, I'm Justin Bullock, you're the co-host. And today we have a, another Bush School faculty who is our guest, Dr. Reiko uh, Wong. She's an assistant professor in the International Affairs Department. Reg is her boss. I'm so sorry. Reiko.
1: Soon to be an associate professor. Soon
0: to be an associate professor, um, which is super exciting. I hope we say that about me this time next year. I'm submitting my packet this year. Um, and we're, we're going to talk with uh, Rego about her uh, some of her work on rebel governance and rebel diplomacy. Um, she has a book on this topic that was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016, which was called the Wartime Origins of Democratization, Civil War, Rebel Governance, and Political Regimes, and is doing a number of projects on this. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So as I warned you before we started, I'd like to start with the guests by asking them how they think of themselves as a researcher. So you get to pick your topics in this field. And I was wondering how you kind of view your view your work and the questions you're interested in.
2: Sure. Well, thank you. Um, I am clearly a scholar of political violence and uh, violent conflict in particular. Um, and in that vein, I've been particularly interested in uh, studying rebel groups. Um, who are they? Where do they come from? Why would they ever want to fight against the entire government of an established state? Uh-huh. Um, what? Why do they take these risks? How do they organize themselves and how do they actually fight and what do they get out of it? And so this broad spectrum of questions about who these opposition fighters are and what they do. Um, How did I get there? Um, I've been interested in conflict for probably, uh, I don't know, since probably my undergrad years, Um, but I've been broadly interested in international politics for probably much longer. Um, I um, come from a a multinational family and multilingual family where (laughs) Linguistic tensions, cultural tensions, misunderstandings were just the norm. And yeah. so uh, taking a comparative perspective on everything, uh, including political questions, just sort of comes naturally to me, and so I'm just naturally interested in international politics, how um, states deal with each other, um, how they uh, align, not align with each other, how they fight, not fight, uh, so sort of questions. I would say, particularly, formative experience that I had was when I was a master's student myself at a public policy school. I went to the Wilson School at Princeton um, and I had the opportunity to spend three months in East Timor. Which, uh, this was back in 2003. East Timor was a, uh, the world's newest country at the time. Um, just really gained independence and there was a very large UN peacekeeping operation on the ground there and so I was working with the UNDP as part of the UN peacekeeping commission and so you know three months of that experience is just me really into trying to understand uh, conflict and especially the peace process that follows and post-conflict democratization, um, post-conflict governance, um, etc.
0: So, one of the first questions uh, which you sent me one of your pieces to look at today, and I had I had fun familiarizing myself with your, with at least some of your work. And as a side note, one of my favorite things about us doing this is I get to learn. I just pass people in the hallways and hi, how are you? And, I've been seeing you now for multiple years and didn't have a good idea, like the details of the work you're doing. So it's like, it's fun for me to learn what all my colleagues are doing and read some of their work. So you use the term rebels, what do you, what is that? Uh, is this is this terrorists? Is this people starting a civil war? Is this anyone who's, uh, doesn't like their government and is finding ways to overthrow? How many, how do you think about rebels? Yeah.
2: That's a great question. So the way I think about them, and this is sort of the conventional understanding of, rebel groups and civil wars within my uh, field of research is um, you have a civil war when some group of uh, people with arms want to fight against the government, their own government for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, not just that, but they have to fight and they, there has to be fatalities on both sides. Otherwise, it's if it's just you know, fatalities on one side and it's a, a massacre mm-hmm. by one side, yeah. right? If there are no fatalities and it's just a peaceful contention, okay? Okay. It's a peaceful demonstration
0: or rally, mm-hmm. so there, so has, has, like, level, level violence, has, there has to be some of actual violence. There has to be
2: okay. and violence.
1: If there's no blood, it's not it's, interesting.
0: <laughs>
2: well uh, I do study peaceful social oh okay. too, so I'm generally generally interested in social mobilization <laughs> it's not just violent
0: people. conflict you know, like other things I'm generally <laughs> focused <laughs> on but, the violent, but, but, but the whiff, not
2: the violence that but, <laughs> but, the,
0: but the but the
1: whiff of blood does make it more interesting yeah, certainly a very important hmm. consequential
2: right so um, within that context of uh, civil wars uh, rebel groups are um are people who
0: decide to oppose the government for political reasons and take up arms. And my guess is that um, they go about doing this in lots of different ways. They maybe choose different governance styles. They choose different ways to interact with international actors, whether they're trying to win over favor from the larger international community. So what what types of strategies in general do they take when you're say a rebel group that doesn't have the same power and resources as the as the major state power how do they go about you know the most recent example that you know i'm aware of is the isis caliphate some stuffs coming out now about how they maintained how they worked their bureaucracy and what it looked like and how brutal it was so how do what are the different strategies that rebel groups um take in trying to create their own government
2: Yeah, and that question is precisely what sort of got me into this area of research, which is um, when you look at conflicts and you think, well, there's a lot of blood and there's a lot of violence, but there isn't, it's it's not chaos happening. That's one of the first things you notice when you start uh, studying uh, civil wars um, across various settings, that it isn't all anarchy and disaster, although there's a lot of that. There's a lot of destruction and loss of lives. But there's also a lot of uh, new institutions being created. There's a lot of a certain type of order, even, um, and this is particularly notable in territories where the government has completely lost control or has withdrawn, um, and where the rebel groups uh, are now in control so mm-hmm. of the people and the territories. Um, and what you notice is when the rebel groups take over, they're not they're not just fighting uh, anymore. Uh, what they'll tend to do is go into these territories and start setting up their own institutions. And this is what, uh, what I call rebel governance. Mm-hmm. They have incentives to govern people and to actually start behaving a little bit like a state. Mm-hmm. What, so,
1: what are those incentives?
2: Number one, if they are fighting the state to actually become the state themselves, they want to overthrow their existing regime, or they want to secede and create their own government, uh, create their own new independent state, then they have every incentive to actually act like they could be um, viable, authoritative, competent governors. So they want to demonstrate that to not just the local population, certainly, but also to the international community um, that is paying attention. So it's
0: like a competition of legitimacy at some point. It is
2: a competition of legitimacy. And in particular, uh, if you are trying to succeed and trying to gain uh, international recognition of a new government, you definitely need that international legitimacy coming your way. And how do you get that? Well, you try to please the great powers. And we are really at a point in our history where the great powers will expect that you demonstrate uh, the ability to govern the You come to the monarch,
0: you pay your you pay your price to win over their favor, and You have to win
2: their favor, that's right, that's right. Um, and so um, I started looking at these kinds of institutions that the rebel groups tend to build. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, first when the rebel groups go into a territory, um, they might uh, impose a taxation system. They need funding, right? They need popular support. And so, you know, that's like literally sometimes the rebel groups will just go around talking on people's doors and say, "We are the new authorities in town. You hand over your taxes to us." Um,
1: but that, but that doesn't make you popular, right?
2: That doesn't make you popular. That's right. So you want their money and you want maybe their crops or whatever in-kind taxation. Right? This is often called liberation taxes. Right? <laughs> I like
0: that, yeah. Right?
2: Um, but as you just said, Greg, they need to entice popular support because it's much cheaper for them to actually win their loyalty and then win their taxes than to coerce taxation every single time and so they then might turn to let's say um, fixing the water well or building roads in that point um, and they will often go on to build uh, rebel schools for the kids um, even create mass literacy classes for the adults if there's no literacy rates in those areas. Um, they might build rudimentary uh, forms of hospitals and health clinics. Um, why? Because, of course, if they're going to govern people, um, they want their own people to be healthy, and of course they need fighters and recruits and they need the recruits to be healthy and uh, well looked after. And so they have all these incentives to, um, Start building up these kind of institutions, uh, not only uh, so that they can get the taxes and the support, but so that they can very uh, various audiences that are watching. And so, what you then begin to see is this creation of almost like a mutual exchange system or uh, an implicit social contract, right? which has democratic undertones, right? And uh, some people will argue that it is sort of like an incipient democracy forming in war-torn areas. Others will so say, well, how can you call it an implicit social contract when one party is in-armed, and the other party um, are civili- they're civilians um, who have really no choice but mm-hmm. to yeah. comply with rules, rule. Um, and so I think that there's always a really, there must be a very sort of tense mix of, of popular support and coercion going on in these kinds of government systems. Well.
0: Yeah, so a lot of this is outside of my realm of expertise, so I'll continue to refer to you and Greg as we move on. But I, I remember just paying attention to the news, and some examples of this was, for example, ISIS had a press press secretary that was watching, I think, episodes of Vice News. And it was like, this is who you interacted with. They like had such an administration in, in place that this was the person that spoke to the press and had these uh, these propaganda videos that were very like polished. And so that was another bureaucrat working on um, working on those strategies. And then another thing we see in some of these war-torn areas that, I guess, you know, just kind of growing up in a peaceful America, or relatively peaceful America, you would, the reporters would go and talk with the people in these areas and say, okay, who do you prefer? Do you prefer the national government or do you prefer the ISIS rebels that have come in? Which one? And it was really fascinating to me. It wasn't as much ideological, at least to the people who they were talking to. It's like, well, this entity helped us have water. (laughs) And electricity, and we want those things. And so, when this other entity showed up and started doing it, you know. And so, it was just interesting to me the the way in which they had to compete for the for the civilians' um, preferences, so that they would back that government as a, back the rebels, as opposed to some other government. Which makes kind of complete rational sense when you think about it, but just not something that had uh, entered into my head before.
1: And then there were the beheadings.
0: And then there were the actual beheadings. Yeah which I guess that is one way of providing law enforcement. Um, That's one tool for policing, maybe not the one we would prefer as as Western liberals here, but that's one way of implementing justice.
2: Yeah, so there's the uh, extreme coercion of ISIS, and then there are the everyday practicalities that civilians face, which is survival. Mm -hmm. And if the Islamic State is the one uh, that is providing these services that they desperately need, why not go along
0: with their rule uh, and then stay quiet so that you and your family can survive? I think that is really the health of us many civilians. in these areas. Which kind of makes sense. Which kind of makes sense. So could, uh, ISIS is the one I keep coming to, but um, maybe it would be fun to hear like a, an example of one that you've looked at a little bit more carefully in your research to kind of illustrate what path to governance a rebel group might take and one that the listeners might can kind of Picture? Is there one in particular that you thought a lot about or a case that you looked into that you can share some more of the details with? Sure. So
2: uh, this might sound like a really random case, but uh, I did some field research in Nepal uh, where okay. there was a civil war between 1996 and 2006. And of course, I have my own theoretical and empirical reasons for uh, looking at the Nepalese Maoists. So it's a Maoist insurgency. They're in all okay. fighting against a um, uh, Monarchy. Democratic uh, elected government backed by a monarchy. And uh, the Maoists uh, in the beginning were a uh, very uh, insignificant, unknown group uh, in 1996 and they rose up and took up arms. Uh, relatively unknown, not entirely unknown. And of course, by that time, Maoism had really been discredited all over the world, but here they were. I think the,
1: <laughs> I think the Chinese had given it up by then.
2: The Chinese had. <laughs> they did not want to <laughs> <to> do <good. laughs> so yeah. in their neighboring country, um, they said, we're not going to support them at all, right? And, uh, and so there they were. They had no international backing. They were really on their own, uh, trying to fight against the Nepalese government. So what did they do? Well, they did what uh, makes complete sense to me. They went into the countryside of Nepal, of course, Nepal being an extremely mountainous area. The government had very limited reach in the peripheries of Nepal. Mm-hmm. in the mountainous areas and the rural areas. So they actually went into these territories. Of course, many of the fighters were from there, so uh, that made sense as well. And then they uh, began to talk to the people and say, we are going to demolish the current system. We are going to fight for your rights. We're going to fight for your equal representation. We are going to fight for women's rights. Right? All these sort of the standard communist rhetoric of we are going to fight for equality and representation for all. And that meant a lot to... The police in the countryside. We have never, heard of this we have never been represented. Women are going to be in the government, right? Quotas for women, right? These ideas have never been uh, offered to, uh, to these rural uh, residents. And so they immediately uh, sort of got uh, interested in the Maoist insurgency and not just the propaganda network and the ideology, but at the same time, the Maoists started doing these things. Um,
1: and, so, and so the go- the government wasn't present here. It's not that the it's not that the Maoists had to fight their fight their way in, or it, they just was it kind of ungoverned territory that it was they.
2: not ungoverned. But it's uh, just very minimally. Governed. Minimally so governed. So there might have been a governor, provincial governor, right. but uh, really not much law enforcement, right? So it, when the insurgents went in, basically the state authorities just kind of packed up and fled, mm. and so there wasn't a whole lot of fighting in these early years of the conflict, believe it or not. Um, the Maoist sort of just penetrated these areas. They started establishing their institutions. They built their health clinics. They built their schools. They did a lot of uh, mass education programs. And the people began to say, look, um, these are the people who are actually speaking up for our rights and our interests, and this has never happened to us. And so they got a lot of support, and they were also militarily successful. They fought a sort of a classic guerrilla insurgency against the government. Um, it took the Nepalese government a long time probably four to five years until they actually started marshalling the army to go in to fight against them. Uh, before that, it was just all, all law enforcement work. They just didn't take, take the out very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, uh, this group of, basically, uh, small group of fighters grew into a formidable group. Uh, of course, there were a lot of female fighters uh, uh, in the ranks because, uh, hey, Maoists. Uh, and they never took over the capital, they never got there, um, but they got sufficient support and in particular um, their ideas got so much support, if not the rebel group itself, that people really mobilized and in the end what happened was, like, was a massive protest uh, in the capital city um, asking for regime change, asking for a new government, asking for the king to step down and be done with. and, uh, and the related to popular demands. The war ended in a peace treaty between the government and the Maoists, and now the Maoists have been pretty much mainstream. They are a mainstream political party. They conduct in elections. Um, so that's the war that ended. And what's useful to me about uh, knowing about these seemingly minor insurgen- insurgencies and having some of these cases is that uh, when the Islamic State did arise, um, <laughs> Popular media was going crazy, Uh right? And of course, there were reasons uh, to go crazy with them. Really, really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were all shocked, Uh Um, and. However, I, um, you know, knowing these other cases, to me, what they were actually doing, right, the, not the beginnings but uh, their attempts to control territory and to govern them and provide these services, and there was a minister of this, a minister of that, right, and their really sophisticated level of organization, not just that, but how quickly they put themselves together, how quickly they were organized and providing these services and institutions was not all, at all surprising to me, and so, um, it's it's so helpful in a sense to have sure. that comparative perspective and you
0: see these new, new groups So the Maoists were relatively successful in their their rebellion. Uh, ISIS at different points was relatively successful, controlled some territory, um, had a pretty strong force come against, against them, which uh, has kind of disrupted that. Are there? Uh, do you have an example of a rebel group that uh, maybe doesn't do these things so well? They're less organized and they're not able to get this rebel governance and diplomacy thing and are kind of just crushed. Are there examples? Is there maybe an example, just one of those that you could share as well? There are a
2: lot of examples of, of those kinds of groups. So there is a... Rebel that
1: groups that got crushed? <laughs> yeah, plenty plenty of examples there.
2: There's a good variation on huh? that score. Huh? Um, See, so um, going back a little bit further in time, uh, Sierra Leone had a huge and very nasty, and bloody and uh, atrocious civil war uh, in the 1990s, um, and the people there, the RUF, um, was just um, apparently just really interested in brutality and not so much interested in the, the political work that um, mm-hmm. uh, we've seen other kinds of cases and. Um, observers sort of concur that uh, the, this was sort of a special case because they had access to all of the profits from the diamond mining, and, 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 and the travel,
1: original and, uh, blood the, diamonds. The
2: original blood diamonds. And so, when you are uh, sufficiently funded with these kinds of resources, why bother with knocking on people's doors? Because that takes a lot of time and effort.
1: Why bother with democracy if but, the money's coming uh, in
0: anyway? Democracy. Why bother with uh, education for the uh, children? least. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting the different like ways in which it plays out. Do, do you have, um, I guess, my final question, thinking about, but just broadly about your research. And maybe this will be a silly question, but are there certain ri- situations that give rise to rebel groups? Um, I can imagine that there are. Um but maybe maybe not. Maybe there's nothing that kind of systematically leads to people rebelling. But that would be one question I was interested in. And two, if we were um if we were trying to tell rebels or states how either to be successful as a rebel group or how to successfully squash a rebel group, given your research, do you have any ideas about that?
2: Sure, so uh, the first question is really about the causes of civil wars. Uh, There's pretty good cross-national research on this, uh, and it will pinpoint uh, to very intuitive factors. So civil wars tend not to occur in uh, advanced industrialized democracies, although there was the uh, Northern Ireland conflict within um, the United Kingdom.
1: And and there was that unpleasantness here in America between 1861 and 1865. Sure, yeah. although
2: yeah. I suppose you could argue, you could question whether the United States was a, a democracy then. That right. Right. But um, in general, um, wealthy countries, right, yeah. countries with high GDP and uh, well-established markets, have civil wars. Why? Because lots well, of people can use the legitimate institutional channels for expressing their grievances. Um, and so they tend to occur in the developing world where institutions are weaker. Um, they tend to uh, occur uh, in times of political transition. Um, and so if it appears that uh, well-established autocratic regimes are somehow weakening or crumbling, um, then people might take that as an opportunity to arm themselves and rise up. Um, I think we could point to the cases arising from um, the Arab uprising to 2011 uh, for those uh, kinds of examples. Um, and um, they tend to occur where conflict has occurred in the past, okay. uh, which uh, is actually important for thinking about the future of Afghanistan, the future of Syria, the future of Yemen. These ongoing conflicts
0: that we're seeing right now, definitely the future of Iraq. So once a society gets used to the violence, at some point in their history, it is more likely that it will happen again.
2: Maybe there's that. Maybe it's sort of skills-based, mm-hmm. but there's also, uh, of course, the fact that conflicts destroy institutions, and they destroy the social fabric of the society, and they aggravate any pre-existing tensions between groups, particularly ethnic groups, they'll so deepen ethnic divides. Uh, and of course, the insurgents and the government will both instrumentally use uh, identities to deepen grievances uh, through a civil war, and so that exacerbates ethnic tensions, uh, and so these societies tend to have a very difficult time recovering. Of course, um, what's really interesting, though, is that your goal, your interest is long term peace. Um, then, uh, negotiated settlement to end the civil war when the two parties, the two or more parties, uh, come together to negotiate a peace treaty. Uh, you would think that this is a good ending to a civil war, right? This is what the United States is trying to do uh, in Afghanistan right now. Uh, it's trying to do that, I think, in Yemen, the international community although I don't no, the accentuation of these be involved in the government. Libya, though, very Lydia? directly. That's right, exactly. Um, so you would think this is a nice ending to a civil war, if there's such a thing as a nice ending to a civil war. Why? Because this looks democratic. It looks inclusive. It looks representatives. What better way to end the civil war than to have all parties sit around the table and agree
0: on the country's future? It's a <laughs> good photoshop. It's uh, a, photom- a yeah, photom- that's yeah. right.
2: Um in terms of peace, you can imagine that this is actually one of the worst outcomes right why well once you've signed that document the peace treaty you actually have to work with each other and after you've been killing each other after you've for been killing each other and uh, after your family has been affected and your friends have been affected, right so there is no trust between the parties okay? and sometimes we just don't want to disarm at all right?
0: God, this um, sounds so much like the u.s civil war coming. The,
2: uh, uh, I think it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: growing up in Georgia, it mean, was still like uh, people who would now be in their eighties, you know, uh, family members or family friends who were that age, and they kind of talk about civil civil war still, even that generation in that way. And I think it plays out politically in the South, where you know we want to hold on to our guns, we don't trust Washington, some of the racial uh, elements holding over from the Civil War. I mean, it's anyway. Just as you're listening, I'm like, oh. Like, These things
2: sound familiar. Yeah, yeah. and that I mean, the
0: legacy of that war is still lingering and playing out in our current day politics, Mm -hmm. which is just really interesting to me. Even after I signed peace treaty, right? I mean, that was what was making me think about,
1: you know. No, there was no peace treaty. (laughs) The rebels were put down by the government. That's what happened in 1865. There was no peace treaty. There was a surrender.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. And then there's been (laughs)
0: <laughs> After point. a fashion. You yeah. you have a
2: yeah. clear victory mm-hmm. by one side, if what you care about is peace, that country tends to be much more stable than if the war had ended in a negotiated settlement between multiple parties. why that party has condoms of power, the other party has been discredited,
1: and vicious, disarmed,
2: whatever they want. Uh, the the party has lost really has no not a whole lot of incentive to rise up again in, uh, in the immediate future, at least. They might group a few years, but they, if they have been defeated. They're done. Uh, and the government, of course, will take steps to make sure that they're completely gone, eliminated, disarmed, disbanded, that they don't show up anywhere. Um, and so uh, think about Syria. This is not the ending that uh, probably most of us in this part of the world had anticipated or had hoped for. But you could imagine uh, that at least the conflict may not begin again if it ends up in a clear outside victory because who would, given the tremendous risks and the incredible that's been taking place. So this is not a pleasant peace, but it may be a kind of peace. But, or at the least, the, the conflict may, may end in that, in that way. Afghanistan. I am not sure that the peace, any peace, if uh, the parties will agree to its terms, will hold.
0: Um, so the Afghanistan case is really interesting, and uh, I interviewed a couple of our former students who worked in the, the current Afghan government as the the peace treaty is being negotiated, mostly with the Taliban and not with the with current okay. Afghan government. And you can listen to that. Um, you can hear it sort of in their voices that this doesn't seem like the, doesn't feel like this is a, a route to peace. Um, mostly because this group feels left out of the negotiations. Um, and so I can certainly see this playing out where you still have two relatively powerful groups in the country, the Taliban and the Afghanistan you know, elected government, that peace there might be uh, I can imagine that the Afghan citizens
2: will be feeling left out of that process. If they have been left out of the process. Hmm.
1: You said powerful. The question is does the elected Afghan government is it able to mobilize any kind of support and any kind of military power if the United States leaves it? I mean, its military power has been the United States. Uh, and while there's been an effort to build the Afghan government's forces, you know, they are untested without American the American backstop. So in
2: addition I According to my reading, the Taliban is stronger than it has ever been since 2001, and this is after 17 years of fighting against the United States. So uh, I don't think that this is going to be an easy path, peace treaty or
1: a peace treaty. So, so, let's get back to the democracy question. Because you talked in, in the Nepalese case and some of the other cases about an implicit social contract, about the provision of services, but I think in your work you also talk about actual uh, democratic institutions established under rebel governance. Could you talk about the importance of that versus cases where say on an extreme side, the ISIS caliphate, there was provision of some amount of services, there were schools if you wanted to send your kids to the schools, Uh, there was some amount of law and order but there were no democratic uh, uh, institutions developed under rebel governance.
2: Sure. So um, this is an instance in which uh, a scholar you know, has a hypothesis, tests it, and then has a null finding, and then the null finding gets into a book. My initial hypothesis was, well, people are calling this an implicit social contract. And at least in some cases, it looks like the... Civilians are just voluntarily giving to the rebel groups their taxes and their crops, and then the rebels are taking care of the civilians, protecting them from the government forces, and protecting them—you uh, know, uh, giving them intelligence so that they can protect themselves, and uh, providing you know, these uh, infrastructures and institutions. Um, And so, hypothesis, Uh, rebel groups that build these kinds of institutions and govern civilians in this way, if they prevail in the war, uh, whether through an outright victory or through a negotiated settlement, um, that country will have the institutional basis to create a democratic society. It turns out not to be the case, probably for the reasons that you just (laughs) mentioned, Greg. The fact is that there is a whole variety of rebel governance systems, even among the ones that do uphold the governance. Um, the other thing is, institutions are uh, institutions, are institutions. they're not democratic institutions per se, and what I mean by this is, if you are in a post-conflict country and you want to state-build, make sure that the government, uh, state, uh, uh, infrastructures and institutions, political institutions in place, um, institutions are helpful for both democracies and autocracies. Others have said that scholars and authoritarianism in particular. And so the fact that you have roads, the fact that you have, you know, built electricity in a particular village or villages, the fact that you built schools and hospitals, that's going to benefit both people who want to pursue democracy and people who want to pursue authoritarianism. Institutional structures are helpful to all of them. So I think that is um, amazing for why um, there aren't clear links between rebel governance during the war and those
1: in the governance. Governance, but, but in the Nepalese case, if I recall correctly from the book, they did try to establish some uh, institutions. We're throwing that word around a lot, but they tried to establish some some elements of self governance, right, where people would actually choose local councils. I, I'm forgetting the details because, of course, I read the book back in the fall when I had to write up your tenure case. Uh, but uh, is there something different about these rebel groups who actually seem committed to, to popular choice, to voting, versus those who are only providing services?
2: So in the Nepalese case, um, again, I expected that the uh, rebel institutions, given that they uh, did this uh, full-blown rebel governance in the vast stretches of the the rural areas of Nepal, that these institutions would be helpful in the aftermath of the civil war. Um, What I find is that in this case, there was clearly post-conflict democratization. Uh, There was a new government that was installed, there were new elections, uh, there was a new constitution, the constitution guaranteed all all these rights, Uh, there were representations on the part of women in the government, ethnic minorities have never been represented, even the untouchable castes now have representation in the government. So this was much more democratic, much more inclusive, and much more diverse. And so clearly, I think, on uh, all these measures, you can say that clearly, first uh, conflict, Nepal saw significant demoralization compared to people in the war. But that wasn't, it had nothing to do with the rebel <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> governance, uh Stuff that happened during the Civil War. Number one, because the peace treaty that ended the Civil War said that the Maoists had to dismantle all of their institutions as part of the peace agreement, and as part of the agreement that they would become a political party. Uh, and so, if they had done any good work in terms of governance, they had to be done. Right. Uh, and the reason for democratization, I argue, both in the Nepal case, and I think more generally, is not that little groups build institutions, um, but through rebel governance, the rebel groups actually mobilize the people to rise up and ask for change so That's critically what led to um, the Maoist and the government agreeing to oppose conflict.
1: So, does the ideological stance of the yeah. rebel group have any effect on this? So, I assume that the good Maoists, when they come in, aren't exactly looking to build parliamentary democracy. But, it does seem like the Maoists in in uh, in the Nepalese case were willing to accept these notions of you know bourgeois democracy, uh, maybe because the, of, of changes in China, maybe because of something else. Whereas if you if you get Al Qaeda or, or ISIS, these people are are ideologically opposed to the notion of popular sovereignty. Right? It's the sovereignty of God. It's not the sovereignty of the people that should that should uh, uh, determine governance. So. Why does a Maoist group kind of sign on to bourgeois democracy?
2: That's a, that's a great question. Um, so the Maoists, uh, as you said, I don't think that they thought that they were going to, to be agreed to this new democratic system when they first uh, entered into the Civil War. Um, but because of the way things turned out and because by nature this... Uh, peace treaty was a democratic exercise in the sense that two opposing parties agreed to share power in a new government, and almost by nature and by definition, that was a more democratic system than what came before it. Um, and so I do think that the, ideology, ideal, uh, the ideological component is there, uh, right? The house spoke to underrepresented people, and then mm-hmm. the government was much more inclusive as a result in the aftermath of the war. But if you, let's say, have a peace agreement between the current uh, government of Pakistan and the Taliban, again, almost by definition, because you are agreeing to share power with a new group, um, the post-conflict government, regardless of whether the Taliban believes in a democracy, uh, I think will be more representative and more inclusive than um, uh, what came perhaps not what is currently in place, which was basically designed and engineered by the United States uh, and uh, coalition partners. Uh, but at the least, because you're being work with a party that you have not worked with before, in that sense there is representation but something, something but, reflecting sort of a democratic compromise.
1: But not elections, right? I mean, the interesting thing in the Nepalese case, and it's interesting because, you know, Afghanistan, although much larger than Nepal, is mountainous. It, it doesn't have a, a, a long tradition of, of effective centralized government. It's always been a very decentralized political system, which my understanding from your book, Nepal, is also that way. You know, the, the, the reach of the state didn't go very far. It just seemed like when when they got together and did the deal in Nepal, you had people who, you know, maybe with the collapse of the monarchy, collapse of support for the monarchy, you had people who basically were saying on the government side, yeah, we got to loosen up, we got to let these people in. And people on the, on the Maoist side saying, yeah, we got to make a deal with these bourgeois capitalist pigs and... and, and, and and, and so, yeah, we're going to have elections and, and, and we'll win. And, 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 and the people in the government said, well, but, you know, we'll still have some representation. I, it's so hard for me to see the Taliban playing that game. Right. It's so hard for me to see the Taliban saying, well, we'll compromise a little bit here. We'll compromise a little bit there and we'll have seats in the government and we'll be able to run in parliament. It's not what these guys were fighting for.
2: And a lot of times, the outcome is not what these guys were ever fighting right. for, and that is the question for Afghanistan: How much is it held on? Given that they're sort of in a possession of power right now, right. Like they could keep, keep on fighting, right. but they're actually agreeing to
1: talk. So, well, they're uh, agreeing, right? Right. Let's right. They're agreeing to talk to the, the United States. States. Right. They're not necessarily agreeing to talk to the Afghan That's government, right. That's right. because if they can get us out, they think that the Afghan government will just be washed away. You know, much much as. After after an interesting interim period, the Soviet-supported government in Kabul was washed out after the after the Soviet Union left in in uh, in the eighties.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of abstracting back out to this tension between the different types of tools that rebels can use to get legitimacy, and if from the research, so you have it seems to me that like we were talking about earlier these carrots and sticks essentially right and in my mind carrots is like winning this ideological battle getting people to agree to be governed by the rebel group where sticks are you know beheadings lots of violence is there any um is there any coherence or any um patterns that you're aware of in the literature that suggests which one of those tools is more effective or is it just really contextually dependent on the situation of the conflict
2: I think it is contextually dependent, but from sort of a rationalist perspective, if you are trying to govern a territory and the population uh, in that territory, isn't it much more uh, efficient and cost-effective if you could actually win the populist support, right? So that you don't have to coerce your way. Through I think that is. The logic behind uh, rebel governance uh, systems where you see this kind of a mutual dependence where the rebels need the civilians and the civilians need the rebels. Um, I think that's sort logic. And if um they have to coerce their way through everything. I don't know how sustainable that kind of a system is. Um, Because at the end of the day, this is a civil war, you do want to be uh, saving most of your resources and your time for the military in front, right? This is all sort of political work that is oriented towards uh, ultimately winning the war. Um, And so if you really have to put all of that work into governing people through coercion and, uh, and you're not getting Natural compliance and loyalty. That is probably going to be much more
0: difficult. Um, so, I have like a limited set of resources, and you're having to devote more, particularly military resources, you're having to devote more of those towards the people that you're trying to govern. That takes away resources from the battlefront right. for example right.
2: Right. which is actually one of the puzzles that of, of rebel governance why Why didn't even bother with this when they could actually be putting everything you know, like all the all your your fighters and, and resources to the front lines right and why would you do diplomacy when you send rebel diplomats abroad and open political offices abroad? Well, uh, as you said earlier it's all of the legitimacy work that needs
0: to go in while we're in. Right. So. so that brings me to another question, which is, is it, how important is the diplomacy piece relative to keeping the actual people yeah. that you're trying to govern uh, accepting your, how m- I mean, What is the relative important role of the international community endorsing you as compared to having the people on the ground like you?
1: Ah, the next project. (laughs) The next project Just getting there. Um, I want to
0: stumble onto this, all right. I think it goes uh, hand in
2: hand. For example, uh, in the 1980s, the United States was a staunch supporter of UNITA, an Angolan rebel group in the uh, Angolan civil war. And UNITA did some rebel governance stuff. They had rebel schools and hospitals. They had an airport, apparently, in their rebel headquarters. They have internationally recognized stamps. I don't really know. How
1: Jonas, Savimbi. To Jonas I'm, Savimbi. I'm old enough to remember Jonas Savimbi.
2: And um, no, no. Was
0: this the, just he was the head of okay.
1: UNITA. Yeah, okay, okay.
2: Uh, the, uh, the diplomacy and the governance stuff go hand in hand. Is that UNITA would bring in American uh, officials, uh, fly them into. Nobody really knew, knew really where Jamba, you was, know, Ula, but that's the rebel, that was the rebel capital. They would bring in American visitors, uh, high level officials, uh, to their
1: congressmen and uh, yeah, yeah.
2: And give them this is all
1: part war. of the Cold War
2: give them a tour of their rebel capital and showcase their government's uh, achievements. And so the diplomacy uh, was bolstered by their achievements back home. Uh, and the congressmen would go back home and report to Washington, hey, these groups are doing great work for the people of Anguilla, and they want democracy, right? Uh, they're anti-communist, most importantly. Yeah. So I think that it went hand in hand. Of course, if you're a secessionist group and you want to found a new state, I think the diplomacy part becomes really important. Really that's what my uh, research shows yeah, then,
1: So, So secession versus uh, fighting for control of, a, of an established state. Do you see significant differences in the way rebel groups act?
2: Not uh, in terms of rebel governance, actually. So both secessionists and non-secessionists uh, do rebel governance. Um, so you might think Hezbollah, for example, is well known for all of the governance work that it's done in Lebanon um, It's not trying to secede from any, any country um, And then you have, say, the Tamil Tigers of Sri Lanka uh, which uh, the LTTE was trying to uh, found its uh, own independent country and did a lot of diplomacy did a lot of rebel governance and so,
1: also, okay. also did a lot of suicide bombing <laughs> Did a lot of, uh. of suicide
2: bombings. <laughs> That's right, yeah. uh, especially in Colorado. Um, so not so much, uh, a, a, not a stark difference, right. uh, but I do think that the secessionists do really have to focus on the diplomacy work. They have to play the diplomacy side the more. There is no re- formal political recognition by the international community, right. by that I mean the P-5, um, then you're doing uh, You will forever be an unrecognized non-state actor, uh, so uh, that diplomacy work becomes really important.
0: So we're at the 45-minute mark. So here in a moment, uh, audience, be ready with your questions if you have any. But before we do that, is there anything that we haven't touched on on this topic of rebel governance and rebel diplomacy that for a general listener that you would want to make sure that you get to highlight yeah. for them?
2: <laughs> we talked enough, but uh, <laughs> just briefly to get to the um, ongoing research huh? uh, that Greg referenced. So all of this research on diplomacy got me thinking about actual individuals who conduct this type of work. Like, who are they? Who are these rebel leaders who lead these organizations? How do they actually come to a place where they say, I'm going to drop everything that I am doing right now, and I'm going to become a rebel leader? Right, so if you think about John Boreing, for example, he led the, the secessionist movement in South Sudan. And uh, he uh, has a PhD in economics from the University of Iowa. He was offered a postdoc at UC Berkeley. Uh, that's what he's talking about right? So then yeah, yeah. he said, i oh, forget the post postdoc. I'm going back to Sudan to, to really start
1: up this." If, if only it had been a tenure track position.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All this be
1: uh, yeah, history in Sudan could be very different.
0: <laughs> so
2: uh, so now I'm looking at uh, looking at these rebel leaders, and um, with a couple of colleagues of mine in political science. Uh, in other universities, we're compiling a big data set of rebel leader biographies. And we haven't quite analyzed the data yet. The data set is almost completed. But one of the really interesting things coming out of this research, just descriptively, uh, is that rebel leaders are actually overwhelmingly well educated. And so, in our list of about 350 leaders for whom we have education data, there's a list of about 500 leaders who have fought between 1980 and 2011. Uh, Within this list, uh, we find that over 70% have degrees in higher education—bachelor's, master's, or PhD—and a good chunk of them have a master's or a PhD. Um, Common areas of study uh, in their degrees of higher education: political science, economics, law, and religious studies, and most leaders of Islamic studies. So, these are well-informed, very well-educated. Train rebel leaders. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> Not
1: Shhhh! Quiet! <laughs> this
2: is job market season for the students. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Try alternative well, uh, careers before you get into violence, but um, <laughs> in all these kinds, all are things. people who have lives and, uh, you yeah. know, sort of normal careers before they get into rebellion, for the most part. Um, it is really interesting. And so if we're thinking about rebel leaders as these, you know, dispossessed, poor, uneducated, illiterate people, maybe some of them are that. But for the most part, they are not that. They are actually sort of part of the global elite, global political elite. If you look at the list of universities from which these people graduate, they could compete with probably uh, the, such a roster of any elite club. Um, and so you could study at the Sorbonne in Paris in the 1950s and either become part of the foreign policy establishment when you go home, or you could go home and become part of the rebel organization, depending sort of on your political yeah. leanings and your... Um,
1: and... and- Luck and luck and, and, and luck and happenstance.
0: Well, thank you so much. This was really interesting for me. So, thank you. And we have a, a few audience members, and I think two hands went up quickly, um, and so we'll we'll take a couple questions if I that.
2: What do we know about the sources of armament of rebel groups? How do they military empower themselves to enter into civil war?
0: So the question, just in case you couldn't hear, was: How are these rebel groups armed? Where do they where do they get their guns? Where do they get their weaponry to fight their battles?
2: Great question. Well, first of all, they might already have guns in their garages or backyards or wherever. Um, a lot of these countries are just flooded with arms to begin with. Um, so uh, Yemen, thing, Yemen
1: is run. the most armed country in the world before okay. before the fighting <laughs> before the fighting started. Yeah. Everybody had about seven guns. And you could buy and you could buy RPGs in, in in tribal markets. I mean, lots of guns.
2: They even show up to popular peaceful protests. armed. Hmm. I think it's part of what they do. So, uh, so Yemen, perhaps a uh, present day Iraq. Mm-hmm. So, um, arms are tend to be easily available in these kind of countries, but if not. Um, what they'll do is to somehow start the fight with the arms that are available, and then every time they win little battles, um, they'll try to seize the battles that uh, the government forces either leave behind or um, cannot get, you know, collect and, and, and leave. So uh, battlefield victories are really important for amassing arms. If the rebel groups continue to do well, they might get external sponsors who will uh, send in the weapons. Of course, the U.S. has been great at doing that throughout. Uh, especially the Cold War decades, but until the present day uh, in various parts of the world. Think uh, Syria, right? Uh, think Iraq.
1: Think uh, Afghanistan, yeah. where we armed, Afghanistan. Uh, armed the government.
2: Absolutely.
1: We armed the rebels in the 80s, and we arm the government now.
2: And probably the same guns are still sticking around. As long as you have the ammunition, these uh, guns can last a long time, which actually, of course, has implications for the possibilities of peace. Okay. thanks for the question yes sir um, also I'm, I'm very interested in state building so I it was really interesting to me to understand the rebel how they actually involved and how actually they can work with or communicate or ha- having some relationships with surrounding powers it could be really good sources for understanding that formulation I mean the state building so, so I think
0: the question that, that I heard is, you know, do they go about state-building capacity different than non-Revolve groups? So that, is, is there a regular path to increasing government capacity as opposed to a state actor that, that didn't come into power via being a rebel group? Is there, like, significant differences for how they go about uh, providing services or go about providing basic uh, governing structures?
2: Historically, I'm not sure that I'm uh, you know familiar enough with uh, uh, historical cases to talk about them. But historically, the way states developed, at least according to the sociological literature on state formation, is through lots and lots and lots and lots of warfare and, and bloodshed. And so, Charles Tilly, probably being one of the most well-known uh, theorists on this, that uh, European states, early uh, modern European states. Uh, where there wasn't this state system as we know it, before that has been established um, rulers or governors or power holders uh, wanted to conquer territory because they wanted to expand their uh, area of um, uh, control Uh, they would just fight each other and uh, fighting would uh, necessitate that they have large armies, large armies would necessitate that they would have bureaucracies and Having a bureaucracy would enable you to start taxing the populations, and so you have this organic state formation uh, trajectory that he describes. And so um, there's still a lot of war fighting within this historical state uh, formation stage. Um, if you think about present day pockets of. Uh, pockets where there's an absence of the the formally recognized state. So you might think about Somaliland, uh, where the Somali government certainly does not uh, have control over it, does not govern it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, non-state actors have sort of organized themselves, and now they are uh, reportedly ruling Somaliland uh, sort of in a peaceful and orderly way. Apparently Somaliland is much more peaceful and more developed than uh, anything around Mogadishu. Uh, It's just that they don't have international recognition. It's probably not coming their way anytime soon.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for the questions. Thanks for being here. And thanks for bearing with us as we had a little bit louder than usual environment. We have some excited patrons here with us today. <laughs>
1: it's good to see that there's uh, you know folks uh, patronizing downtown on Cork. Uh,
0: yeah, in historical downtown Brian. Oh, look! I got to do go. it that time. Well, thanks so much to everyone being here. Thank for being here. Yeah, it was a, it was a treat to talk about your research. Hello. And uh, those listening, um, thanks again for following along. We'll have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, two more episodes coming your way, and then we'll take a little bit of a break and be back with you in the fall so thank you so much for listening thanks again to everyone